Hello, this is Coffee and Consoles, your music podcast where we talk about our favorite songs from a musical standpoint. And the engineering standpoint. My name is John. I'm Kevin. And this week's episode is Spirit of the Radio by Rush. Woo! Let's rock out! Slap in that bass! All right. Hello. How you doing today, man? Well, I'm a little tired, You're... but I'm doing well. Yeah. How about yourself? I'm all right. I've managed to stay uh, healthy so far. Just about everyone we know, including yourself. Including myself and my wife. <laughs> yeah. I've like been stricken with the flu. I actually found out after the fact. I did a show in Louisville. F- funny story. I actually thought we were going to St. Louis before we left. And boy, were you disappointed. I, yeah, well, I don't know if I prefer one over the other. Or maybe, other. yeah, maybe you're more, <laughs> you're, you're happy it was in Kentucky instead. For some reason, those two cities are the same city in my mind. I, I don't, they're not at all, but. No, they're not. In my mind, I can never keep them straight. But so we, we're going to Louisville and it's like, I don't really feel that well, like on the drive up, like. I'm kind of like hot and cold, like the entire drive, and my head's kind of swirly. And I was like, "Yeah, those aren't good signs." I was like, "This mix is going to be absolutely atrocious." <laughs> like, I have no idea. And it was. Yeah, no. and it was. <laughs> I'm sure it was fine. Um, that was like a random one I wasn't on. Yeah, you a weren't on that gig. one. Yeah, no, I had a a buddy's birthday party that we kind of surprised him. Oh, that's that was with way by more showing fun. up. It was. <laughs> yeah. That, that gig for me, that gig was miserable. Three hours of having the flu doing this mix. And then I thought I was like relatively okay a mm-hmm. couple of days later. And I played a hockey game. And that also was not okay. I actually ended up leaving early because my lungs were on fire from Ugh. coughing the entire like week before. Yeah. Man, it, it was so rough. But I got better and then my wife got sick. So sucks to be my wife. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> it is time certainly of year. is. Oh my gosh! So, as we do every episode, mm-hmm. let's start with the toast to the roast. Toast to, to the, the roast. Nice, nice little little pinch harmonic thing there. I guess it wasn't a pinch harmonic. It was natural harmonic. No, no pinching. No pinching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No pinching. Just a natural. Just a natural. All natural. So what are do my you, harmonics? So what do you got there on your hand? There, what do John? we have here? We're sipping on some uh, from Mexico. Allegedly. Allegedly. They lied to me once. <laughs> Shade grown, light in flavor, silky and aromatic, with hints of sweet orange, roasted almonds, and buttery caramel. It's a light roast here, from which we uh, both agreed is definitely not a light it roast. It is not a light. I, I bought this coffee <laughs> because I wasn't going to have time to roast some with the intent. It looked it looked like the marketing, like I was totally like swindled by their marketing. I was like, okay, I mean, this looks like You look a, at like the bag, it looks very, yeah. I was like, it should be good. Small it says batch. it's light roast. That's what I like. Like it should be, it should be great. And I, Same here. I pour the beans into my grinder, and instantly I was like, those sons of guns, <laughs> they lied to me. Yes, it's when not you're light uh, roast at all. When the beans are like ebony colored, <laughs> yeah, oily with, with oily. little chunks of them blown off. Those are all yeah. tall tale signs that they have reached what's called second crack, which mm. is considered a very dark roast. Not 
like other second cracks. Not like other second cracks. <laughs> womp womp womp. Plumber joke, maybe I don't know. But despite know. their despite their deception, it's, it's not, not a bad, bad cup of yeah. coffee. No, not bad at all. From the fine folks at Hemispheres Coffee, I think that's what they're called. We'll go with it. Single origin. Single origin. Whole bean is the way to go. I don't know, but like. Now that they lied to me once, I don't know if I can trust anything on the bag. Probably not. Right? I mean, it smells nice, but yeah. Because it's why would you... all lies. I feel like why would you roast a coffee that dark unless you had to source it from multiple s- spots? And maybe they were just thinking, Ooh, we won't, they won't notice. Like, you know, we ran out of a certain bean and whatever. I don't know. This is all just conjecture. Yes. <laughs> but seems to me like there's some... Uh, Our coffee conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Maybe we'll get a maybe we'll get a fine note from the fellows who produce this coffee. I'm sure they're listening. I am sure. But anyway, so you're talking about your kind of finally getting over the you know under the weather. Mm-hmm. You're going over the weather now. Going going over the weather. We have broken I through the cloud cover yeah. in the plane, and we are now on the smooth skies. That's not really a phrase, I guess. <laughs> the we, smooth sky, uh, skies of health. <laughs> we made it one. <laughs> yeah. It's going to catch on. So we had a, I don't know if you'd call it an interesting show last weekend, but definitely one that's, uh, I call it my spinal tap gig of the year. Oh, okay. In which we played for a daddy-daughter dance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At a church. And <laughs> the one lady who uh, who books us, she said after the show, or maybe it was before the show, she goes, I think I would get fired if I didn't hire you guys. Yeah, that was a very nice compliment what? for a band. Like, I would get fired if I didn't hire you. I looked at her dead in the eyes and I said, that would have been my biggest secret. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. The so quality I, of the show just went down 30%. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just picture like, I don't know when it is in the movie when like, don't a spinal tap they're like playing for a bar mitzvah at some point yeah, yeah, like yeah. That. <laughs> it's like about they, when they get stuck in the pods <laughs> yes that's also another great moment but yeah this is like our spinal tap gig like playing for a bunch of literally little girls and their dads <laughs> yep now to be fair some of the dads did come up afterwards and then they were thanking us basically for being there they said man you, you guys make it fun for us so thank you for oh, being yeah. there <laughs> and as i like to think that half of their amusement is watching our singers try to censor themselves on the right, spot in the moment. Yeah. yeah in the moment. Censor- censorship is like, Oh, we're playing forget you, which is, you know, or, you know, initially titled, you know, F you. And then there's all <laughs> these sexual innuendos throughout the song. And our singers just like looking at us like a deer in headlights. Like, how am I going to get through this song? Like <laughs> having not thought of every single lyric, you know, beforehand is now <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> to their credit, they do a pretty good job of coming up with like funny, funny yes. little things oh to say God. instead. Yeah. It was it was hysterical. Fill my cup, put some uh, Capri Sun in it. I, I think, think that yeah, was I one think that was one of them <laughs> from uh, during Uptown Funk. Yeah. I think he might have on on, on one of them. He he definitely mumbled through a phrase because he oh, just yeah. like couldn't. <laughs> There's definitely some uh, mumble rap going on. <laughs> <laughs> the dads were audibly laughing every time that happened. Yes. They're just like, oh, ah, yes. Yeah. And luckily, most of it just goes over the kids' heads. They, you know, they don't know what's going on. It it's could just, be a worse gig. Just kind know? of loud noise and, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the other Random thing. Disney songs. I try to keep it, the, the volume so low. Yeah. But. And that's smart. It is a loud band. You know, yeah. it is a band. There's going to be a certain volume. Yeah, especially with live drums and such. Yeah, but, you know, 
we we basically do it as a charity. Yeah, that's like, true. You know, so I think they've hired us every single year. The band was in existence. Oh my so gosh, it's kind yeah, of a, it's thank like been you. four or five years now. It's crazy. Can't wait till next year. Yeah, you know you've made it in the music industry when you're playing for a daddy daughter dance. Right. <laughs> one one week we're playing for a corporate event that flew in forty thousand people from around the world, and <laughs> the yeah, next the right? next week we're playing for the daddy daughter dance. Yep, just the way it goes. Any and everything. <laughs> what you been up to, John? Well, besides some besides playing games. and, yeah, you know, teaching guitar during the week. We have a lot of small house stuff, which, uh, you know, we're slowly in the process of we're going to sell our place and um, having a house built, which is kind of exciting. But since it's been raining just about every other day here for the last month and a half, there's been basically no uh, <laughs> no progress on the new house. Just yeah. because got to got to put that Crowd's foundation too wet. I know. Yeah, so it's just kind of waiting for that and slowly, you know, doing some upkeep in the house, you know, cleaning the blinds, stupid stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. For, <laughs> Sounds like you are just full of excitement and joy. Yeah, we painted our whole bedroom like a month ago, and then when you look back like, oh, kind of has some uh spots here and there that didn't get fully covered. Mm. So we're like, how much of this are we going to try to cover up and or just hope that you know potential buyers don't see <laughs> they'll probably just paint it what they want anyway so i don't know we went through all this trouble to put a nice you know uh they're gonna change it 100 <laughs> percent. it's a nice light gray that's in fashion these days so very nice cool uh i guess it would be a warm color not a cool color but it's like when you buy an instrument it's like you're gonna even like change the tuning heads on it change pickups do all this stuff to it. True, yeah. You Although it, my uh my 2000 Fender American Deluxe Strat only until last year that I finally changed something with it. I had to put a new uh whole uh bridge into it. Oh, wow. new bridge. Cuz like the uh where the tremolo screws in, it just got stripped on the inside so I can never keep like a tremolo bar connected oh, to fine. it. So you just block your tremolo. Yeah, anyway. So I got a nice uh, Callahan bridge which always makes me think of like the movie tommy boy because that was the family company callahan uh brakes or brake pads or something like that (laughs) so i got it thank you callahan for your well-built bridge but yeah that was the first thing i ever did with that guitar it's been pickups i'm probably not that happy with but i just never replaced them well, in a, in a few weeks i too will have a strat type yeah you're telling me about that yeah having a Stratocaster style. Style, that's right. Built, I guess. Not official, not TM. That's true, no. But it's definitely a, not true. Handmade by a, by a gentleman named Tim Rocco. Shout out to Tim. Yeah. Very nice gentleman. He's doing a fantastic job. The So I found out, I went to visit him at a shop. The body of the guitar I'm having built is actually a single piece of Swamp Ash. That's awesome. Which is really cool. I, I don't know if it really makes a difference, but it, it's very rare to, to see one piece. Yeah, swamp ash because he's just it's almost that's what he does that's the same because he uh i was fortunate to have a telecaster built by him and yeah same wood a single piece swamp ash which yeah. is pretty awesome and john's john's telly sounds great as much as much crap as i give him for playing it on the rock block it does sound good when you don't have time to switch guitars just make do. <laughs> I'm just, you know what? I'm not going to mix front of house anymore. I'm just going to be John's guitar tech so he can have the proper guitar sure, for man. every song. I'd be happy with that. <laughs> just throwing guitars. 
<laughs> Bring along your SG. Which oh, I'm yeah. Playing here for this. That would be proper for the one ACDC song we do. Yep. And the, like, one third of that song that we actually yeah do as well. it's like a chorus and a verse and then you're you're done yeah all of that some like rock purists would just hate our rock medley oh in it, some it, in some regards they'd also love it but they would also it makes me upset it's like man <laughs> being being a rock rock and roll fan myself yeah it's like we do four hours of pop music and then like 13 minutes of rock <laughs> with like a verse and a chorus for all the all the hits but it's a good time no one seems to mind Oh, they all they dig it for the most part. So this week's selection, we've rambled yeah, on enough. I think we have. I guess this was my selection. It was indeed. Strangely enough, and I'll tell you why in a second. But we're looking at the classic legendary Canadian rock band Rush. That's right. A power trio in a sense. I mean maybe it would be a power trio. Maybe one of the original. Yeah, like after you got Cream, Cream and yeah. then you got who who else? ZZ Top, but maybe they were before ZZ Top, I think. Uh I can't remember how ZZ Top always goes back later than I initially think. Yeah. I think they're like mid I don't know if they really hit their stride until the eighties. I feel like the eighties oh, were ruled by ZZ Top. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's like I don't know why we're going on a ZZ Top right, right. tangent, but yeah. It's like there's a reason why like Marty McFly is a big ZZ Top fan <laughs> right, right. in the movie. It's like they were everywhere. But yeah, we're going to look at Rush in their uh, hit song, Spirit of the Radio. Mm-hmm. And so first off, like, this is kind of timely because their drummer, Neil Pert, just like sadly passed away um, right. at the time of this recording. I think maybe about two weeks ago now. I would say two weeks, yeah. More or less. So, so the reason I said I strangely picked you know, a Rush song, because I am, did not grow, grow up a Rush fan. No? No. I don't know about you. Not really. Yeah. Like, kind of. Like, I <laughs> I knew them in, like, you know, I liked all their, their big hits, like Tom Sawyer and YYZ, all those. But Yeah. yeah, yeah. Limelight, Working Man, um, you know, this song, Spirit of the Radio, like, I was familiar with... The more guitar-driven songs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Familiar with their, like, their radio hits, and they had a lot of success on the radio. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I did it. They just didn't happen to be one of those bands I grew up listening to. I was, I guess, just kind of indifferent. You know, I didn't love them. I wasn't, like, an active fan, but I had nothing against them. Um, but I think I realized, like, as a teenager... Usually the singer didn't really affect me. Like I listened to songs for, you know, the the riff, the harmonies, the maybe uh, the different textures or sounds. Like you know, I like to listen to bands that made like each song kind of a different atmosphere or Mm -hmm. environment. That's what drew me into music in the first place. It wasn't the singer. Like the singer was like the lowest <laughs> on right. the like priority list you know even guitar wasn't necessarily the top but with rush you're probably either going to really love getty lee's vocals or not really and there, i think i was kind of more on the not really side of things yeah <laughs> this is definitely a specific uh sound to his voice <laughs> i can't imagine being him and then being like i'm gonna i'm gonna sing lead that that takes some courage for sure. Definitely. And he gets up high too. It's oh like, yeah. I kind of like 
in my head for some reason, I don't know why, but like his voice and like when you go back to like Sting in the police days, that kind of um, seemingly higher than necessary <laughs> male singing <laughs> thing. But, and funny enough, they both would uh, venture into like reggae styles too. But that was a big thing during that time in the early 80s, mid 80s or so. But I wanted to give some due diligence to Rush and Neil Peart. Um, since I wasn't like a big fan initially, I had no idea that he was basically the main lyricist. Yeah, I learned that too. I was I was surprised. Um, you well, know, usually, you know, drummers, you know, make sure the drum riser is level by <laughs> making sure drool's coming out of both sides yeah, of the mouth. Yeah, let's be know? honest. Like most drummers and bands are the least... Um, studious? <laughs> studious. I... Uh, Okay, Tommy Lee was a very <laughs> studious drummer. Well, it, like, as far as like the whole like collaborative effort of like writing material, that sort of thing, like the drummer <laughs> is the least uh, productive in that <laughs> arena. Like, they're given probably the least ideas. They're like, "Yeah, I can do this." God, God, do. We're gonna get roasted. Yeah, I know. by the drummers. <laughs> <laughs> but he was like the lyricist, and he was a well-read guy you know like he had a lot of um interesting takes on life you know he's especially in the early years really into like sci-fi and fantasy and that definitely is reflected in a lot of his uh lyrics to their songs especially as you get into the album uh 2112 they're kind of like big concept album you could say and so it'd be up to getty lee and alex lifeson the guitarist they would like write the tunes, musically speaking, you know, come up with different riffs, sections, the song forms, and Neil was the uh, the lyricist. So I chose Spirit of the Radio because I thought it'd be kind of a good example of like some of his lyrical writing. Yeah, there's there's a couple good little chunks in there that yeah. kind of give you. It almost reminds me of the song Money Oh yeah, Pink Floyd, <laughs> just in, in the sense where it's a song kind of, making fun of the profiteering that can happen in the music industry. Yeah, and then that kinda, song became a success, you know? It's kind of yeah, like ironic. Yes. kind of reminds me of that same type of thing. Kind of despising what maybe used to be like a pure, or at least seemingly like a pure, like, industry, like music. Yeah, or like, you know, the which it was probably never in the first place, right. but that, you know, there's that sort of um, appearance to it, especially as you're younger growing up. Yeah, and I had the same thing. Whether it was you know like the you know, bands writing all their own stuff, and you know like that whole creative control. And then you find out like, well, most of that that you heard on the album was by studio musicians, and you know, <laughs> and they had a couple extra like co-songwriters that came in and polished up things, and you know the whole like kind of the machinations of the industry itself like become more prevalent as you get older, and that can be you know disheartening to a certain extent it, it is at so. first but then i don't know for me i kind of stopped caring about it because you let the man take over well, you became part of the machine <laughs> you only you only have to be on take 78 once to, uh, oh my god yeah really wish you had someone in there who, who could just play <laughs> the could, freaking part yeah land that part oh my i'd be lying if i didn't Get into the high upper digits with takes, but I don't think I got to you know seventy eight or seventy nine. <laughs> it's a 
It's a thing. Oh, but yeah. Part that's of, true. Part of that is just you kind of chase the dragon. It's not yeah. necessarily that they can't play the part. It's just, yeah. you know, chasing the dragon. You know, you never catch the dragon. It's true. Like the dog in the car. It's just, you're, you're always going after it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of whatever to me now. But you're absolutely right. When, when I was younger, I kind of was in the same boat. Yeah. Like, and get the, upset with people using tuning and stuff, you know? <laughs> like, oh, they're not they're True. not real artists. Yeah, or gosh. Let alone the idea of like recording with a click track or something like that. Yeah. Or, you know, or overdubbing, you know, mistakes. Like, no, it should be one whole performance. You know? Right, right. Like rarely is that a thing. But yeah, so this song is like it's a good take on, you know, talking about the the radio industry and how kind of uh disillusioned you can become with it uh which we can get into a little bit later so the track spirit of the radio is off their permanent waves album released in 1980 so we're right at the beginning of the new decade the cusp of the paradigm shift from (laughs) classic rock and roll to hair metal hair metal glam rock yeah glam rock uh Prog rock was quite, you know, because yeah, they'd be considered like a prog rock. Yeah, quite a bit of the prog rock. Although they're kind of like, I guess, almost like post the first generation of prog rock. Not the first generation, but like, you know, that really kind of became a fa- thing in the maybe early mid-70s. You'd have, oh, like even bands like Chicago kind of had some like prog rock Funny to them, you should mention them. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer is a big one. Yes, would be another good one. Yeah, yes. What about, uh, what was it, Chicago? Chicago, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll get into this a little bit when I talk about the tech specs, but they actually recorded one of their albums at the same studio that Rush used. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, I wrote nice. it down. Up in uh, Canada? Up in Canada, yeah. I just wrote down some uh, some other notable acts who had been there, and they were they were one I wrote down. But we'll get more into that later. Yeah, oh, that's cool. So, um, another thing I never knew about Neil Peart, starting off, kind of some, you know, background info is, I had no idea he was not the original drummer from Was he not? No. (laughs) He joined them, like, six years later after they had started. Well. So, um. First guy had to warm up the seat, I guess. I know. It's like, it's so funny, you know. But the original drummer was a guy named John Rutsey, who I don't know anything about. So Neil joined Rush in 1974, which by that point, they had already been a band for about six years. Yeah. So they were almost a band for the entire length that the Beatles were together. <laughs> right. Before Neil Peart joins them and they really start to take off. You know? Right. <laughs> so like, you know, for those who might know um, off of Rush's uh, first album, Working Man, you know, that was like a, a big hit off that mm-hmm. album. So that's not Neil Peart. On the record. Yeah, well, that, I guess that kind of makes sense, because that one, I always found that one to be like a lot more straight ahead. It is, yeah. If they were a little bit more straight ahead, just kind of hard rock band, and especially once uh, Pert joined, they started to veer into those other kind of styles, and, you know, through, you know, composing more of the songs, and like, getting a little bit more complicated, especially right. with you know, time signatures and... Concept albums. Yes, and, concept I wonder, albums. I wonder how that worked with, with Neil Pert joining the band and then becoming the main lyricist. Yeah. I, I'm not for certain, like who was writing the lyrics beforehand. I assume probably it's just like, 
Geddy Lee and Alex Lifeson just didn't care about writing the lyrics themselves. They just like Maybe did just, it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, oh yeah, you can come up with much better stuff than we can. You, know? <laughs> you, you go for it, buddy. <laughs> yeah. And perhaps like Geddy Lee's voice, Neil Peart's lyrics come to find that there's a group of people who love his lyrics and others who think it's just a bunch of gobbledygook. Yeah. Like I came across, I mean, there's, it's kind of sad, but it's like a, a list of the worst lyricists in rock and they had them listed at number two or three, I think, really? which I think that's really harsh. Funny enough, guess who was number one on who? the worst lyrics? Sting. Sting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Why would you even make a list like that? Like what? I know. It's, <laughs> For clicks, yeah. I guess. But I, Yeah. Uh, sadly enough. Yeah. Oh, but we man. try not to be a clickbaity podcast. We You'll never be, believe these 10 uh, worst lyricists. Yeah, right. We try to stay positive here on this. So uh, the album, produced by the band with Terry Brown, who Terry Brown produced most of their albums, at least up to... Um, through the eight, late 80s or early 90s, if I'm not mistaken. And he seemed to have uh, produced and worked on with you know, several other bands, mostly Canadian bands, like mm-hmm. ones that we wouldn't necessarily know of here in America as well, like Cutting Crew. Um, he produced at least one album by Blue Rodeo, which I have a small little connection to that band. Do you? <laughs> have you heard of Blue Rodeo? No. <laughs> um, Neither had I until my old band, we got to open for them up in oh. Chicago. Uh, this is probably the mid-2000s. Uh-huh. At, um, oh gosh, what was the place? One of the relatively well-known, bit smaller, like, club, venue, bars in Chicago. Ugh! Okay, I don't, I don't think it was, not the Double Door, not... I know almost uh, yeah. nothing about Chicago. <laughs> Being in Illinois, like, that was, like, special especially central Illinois, you know, Chicago and St. Louis, we are too big uh, markets to try to break Lucky into. Lucky yeah, you. I know. <laughs> break into that elusive St. Louis market. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so he produced Blue Rodeo, and yeah, they're kind of like, um, what was that? I don't know if the listeners heard that or not. That, they certainly did. I think you just falling from my desk. Luckily, uh, no coffee was in it. Cup... A.K.A. Flask. <laughs> but yeah, Blue Rodeo was kind of described to me initially like they're kind of like the Canadian Rolling Stones. And that was kind of like a good, like, gave you an idea of mm. their sort of style and sound. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. Shout out to the old uh, Michael Walk band who opened up for Blue Rodeo back in the day. <laughs> old band back then. That's where some of the stories about throwing the telly off the boat, oh, I see. recording at our drummer's house for a year and a half, you know. Year and oh, a half recording session. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you didn't pay the engineer a day rate. No, uh, that was our bass player. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> the main engineer on the album was uh, Paul Northfield, a British guy, actually. He was also a producer, and, and he was also, he worked with a lot of rock bands, which kind of makes sense, like Queensryche, Alice Cooper, Ozzy, even Marilyn Manson huh. later on. And then we had Ray Staff on Mastering. Okay. But then this song, or the whole album, and it's probably very common for a lot of stuff released probably pre-1990s, 
it got a digital remastering done. Of course. In 97 on, for, you know, for going on CD. I guess who did that? You know who did, did uh, that? Probably one of the big guys like Bob Ludwig. Yep. Or, uh, <laughs> really? Yep, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He does everything. No, yeah. So that was kind of interesting. While the band was touring for their Hemispheres album, which was the album that came before this, they eventually, after that tour, realized that they needed to take a short break. So they kind of went on a short hiatus because they had been kind of just going nonstop for years and years. And so after the, that little break and hiatus, they kind of regrouped to start writing for this album. And like I said, like uh, Neil Peart would be the lyricist. So he'd kind of like be in his own little space. And the other two would, you know, go off and be working on riffs, song ideas, the musical side of things. And they'd always kind of come back together and piece things together. So uh, Permanent w- Waves, it reached number three in Canada's charts. And it reached number four in the U.S. There you and go. got certified platinum. So that's kind of cool. And it's uh, the first track off this album. And it starts off with that very distinctive little like guitar riff that almost sounds like, it, you know, maybe to um, to like maybe non-listeners' ears, or non-listeners, non-musicians' ears, you know, it could almost sound like a keyboard or like a synthy thing in right. a sense. Right, yeah, I can see that. Because it has this kind of like, constant 16th note arpeggiation going on. There's a flange effect, which we can maybe start to talk about a little bit. But you have that little riff that starts it off. It's very kind of distinctive now. You hear that, it's like... Here we yeah, go. it's We're definitely a defining, defining riff yeah. of the, the music there. Or the of the song, rather. Yeah, and it's kind of a... I almost have to wonder if this came from like an Alex Lifeson, almost like a warm up routine or like a little practice thing. Because it's a bunch of pull offs. A pull off being you start with a note being pressed down with your finger and you literally pull that finger off. I like to think of it more of like a flick off. Right. That's so one of the hardest things to master when you're learning how to play like lead lines and stuff yeah you just you try to pull off and you hit like the four strings by (laughs) your other hand you tried to do you know especially if you're pressed on an inside string you hit you know your finger hits another adjacent string so it's tricky it's one of those things it's easier said very tricky yeah easier said than done but this little beginning uh like it's a pattern and you could almost like do that pattern with each of your four fingers index middle ring and pinky which kind of makes me think it might have been like a warm-up routine. Right. Like, this is just pure speculation on my part. Okay. Um, you know, kind of similar to how the whole, like, Sweet Child of Mine opening riff was just one of those things that Slash would kind of, like, warm up on. It was just like a little finger pattern that he had sure, come up yeah. with until they said, like, hey, let's write a song <laughs> using that. Since you played every, you know, <laughs> damn day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Yeah. So what do you uh, feel like getting into first? I started to get into the musical side. Wanted to go that route or some... Uh, I've been kind of talking a little well, bit Well, you want already. to talk about the, the flange effect real quick and then yeah. move on into the music because that kind of goes hand in hand with it. So if... I'll just play one string. It's kind of hard to hear with one string. Yeah, it is. When you get to like a chord... Yeah, you can so, really hear that oscillating that's exactly right it's a it's a it's a oscillation so basically okay so what we're talking about here is it's a time-based effect 
Time-based effect, yeah. So you have a few different time-based effects. You have your chorusing, your flanging, and phasing. Phasing, yep. And basically the difference between all three is just the waveform, you could call it, of how you reintroduce the signal. Because what it is, how they originally made the effect was they took two tape machines playing the same thing, and they kind of monkeyed around with the speed of one of the tape machines. One of them, yeah. And the combining waveform of the two machines would effect, effect would produce this effect that <laughs> had cone filtering, which cone is what filtering. you, okay. yeah, it's basically a giant notch out of the frequency spectrum. So what you're hearing is that giant notch being swept around in all different frequency ranges mm. to produce kind of the swirling modulation that you hear. Yeah. So what the difference is in the chorusing, flanging, and phasing is the shape of the cone filtering and, and the, the shape of the wave, essentially, how mm-hmm. you introduce it. So they all sound very similar. but Yeah, you can, like a subtle flange effect can kind of sound like a phaser effect right uh, you know like you know a phaser effect can start to kind of sound like a chorus effect and you know there's like i think of flange that effect is can become more throaty like like there's like a growl that can yeah, almost I can, be I can created um a phaser effect i always think can be a little more subtle than that you know, you For phasing, th- a really good song to yeah. listen to a phase effect is uh, Van Halen, Ain't Talking About Love, I think was done with a, oh, with yeah, a phaser. Yeah. It's I, more of a, like an aggressive. Yeah. And it still has that, you know, that yep. kind of like warped sort of like you just like see a wave moving up and down in a sense and you're, you know, from how you hear it. I thought you were going to say Barracuda by heart. Barracuda. That's like one of the first times that come to mind with that uh, beginning. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, chorus is usually like oh, more of like a shimmery sort of a, almost like a prettier sort of. Yeah, it's a more moderate effect. effect. Like chorusing, it, so in the 80s, these time-based effects were really, really popular. Yeah. Especially, oh, yeah. <laughs> especially chorus, where you would hear chorus on just about every clean Yep. guitar every even bass they put it on bass doesn't matter i mean country music rock yeah pop it was it was everywhere it was everywhere but the fun thing with chorus is you can actually use it on something like drum overheads if you're trying to create a little bit more s- separation mm-hmm. kind of get more of a s- stereo feel you can you have to be very careful with how the modulation is you can't be too deep you know it has to be a very subtle thing but you can actually send the overheads out to the left or right a little further by using chorusing. Yeah. Which is really, really interesting. I think Joe Bonamassa actually uses a chorus pedal, like just a really, really slight chorus pedal. Subtly. uh, Like always on that. He says it tightens up the bottom end. I don't know about that, but interesting. Yeah. It it was, (laughs) I just thought it was a really interesting part of his signal chain where he's like, he's like, I don't really like pedals, but I always have a chorus pedal on (laughs) (laughs) along with these other three overdrive pedals. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Not really. Not really. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's 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 time-based of effects in a nutshell. And mm-hmm. You can dive deep into all the nuance differences, but like to your average listener, they're basically all the same effect, just at varying degrees of intensity. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Like in choruses, just as the name implies, probably the most 
naturally occurring of these time-based effects when you hear a symphony, you know, where you have you know, 15 string players playing together at the same time, 20, yeah. 50, you know, all of them are bowing the strings just slightly differently at a slightly different point in time. And so you start to get that natural chorus sound between, right. you know, instead of just one violin, you have 15 of them playing the same thing kind of sounds louder or bigger than, you know, it really is, even though there's only one part being played. It's yeah. Same with, you know, a choir as well. You'll have 10 altos, 10 sopranos, like you get that natural shimmery, uh, lush sound that they, you know, people might describe it as. It's funny you mentioned the orchestra because I once got into an argument oh, no. with, a, with a classmate of mine. And they were like, you know, the sound of an orchestra is just all the instruments playing out of tune. Because the reason we got into the orchestra discussion was because I was complaining. I'd done like a uh, string quartet like the the night before. It was like one of those real late sessions yeah. too from like 10 to 2 or something. And they were horrible. They they played everything out of tune. And it was like, it was like yeah. the worst thing ever. And I was like pulling my hair out. And so I was complaining about it naturally as we do mm -hmm. and she was like well the sound of the orchestra is all the instruments playing out of tune anyway so you really shouldn't be complaining i was like what we're talking about are two very different things yeah we're talking <laughs> about 15 violins playing maybe three cents out of tune with each yes. other which and is essentially very close to being <laughs> and two. four yeah. interest instruments playing like half steps off from each other <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i remember trying to in a undergrad having some tracking sessions with like string players it's it's great when it's you rough. when it's kind of rough sometimes it, it you live and die by the intonation of a stringed instrument because yeah. it's, it's almost worse when there's just one of them mm -hmm. it's like you can almost like like get by slightly easier if you have like three or four of them and if they're all like doing the same part essentially it's like okay oh, well, yeah. at least uh you know it's like the whole thing of like, well, this singer's not quite in tune before auto tune. Like, just throw on more reverb, <laughs> you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of fix some of that. You know? you know what they used to do too, in that if you had a, someone who wasn't as strong a singer, they would double track them. So yeah. the same kind of idea. Oh know? yeah, it's like if you have you ever tried to draw a circle and you you do the first line, it's kind of like wonky looking, and then mm -hmm. you draw another circle on top of it, and then it looks a little better. And you do you end up doing like five or six circles, and then your eye can kind of you know, fake, it like it's the like more a nice looking circle. circle. It's kind of yeah. the same deal. Definitely. Anyway, um, that was a little bit of a tangent. I yeah, thought was it was one. funny. You mentioned the orchestra and it brought yeah. me back. <laughs> to the good old days. To the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> Seven, eight years ago. Yeah. <laughs> more for me. So uh, Alex Lifeson, to get this, his uh, flange effect, just to finish out on the flange idea, he had an Electro Harmon X Electric Mistress flanger, oh. which I hadn't heard of before, but that's his uh, his go-to pedal for that flange sound. Does he still use it? Do we know? Uh, I'd have to pull this back. This was like, I found a list of his gear per album. Like, so wow, it's like, okay. you know, guitars, amps, um, effects pedals, you know, per album. So I have to go back to that main website. Uh, I always find it kind of humorous. Find it. Where these musicians had this specific set of gear for this album right but then and we're, and we're all trying to get like that specific set of gear right we're trying to get yeah, that if sound. you're a fan of that sound but, you go after it like they always uh, change it 
like it's always it's never the same like hardly ever the same like it's yeah. always like oh no i use a different amp and a different <laughs> guitar it's like well if they weren't happy with it yeah i assume they weren't if that's why they yeah. changed like <laughs> it's it's just so it's just so funny that it's like they don't care at all they're just after a specific thing and then we're all you know retrospectively going oh no we have to find this vintage whatever pedal into them it's just like mm-hmm. oh well i'm just gonna try this pedal and for a lot of players, it was because whatever was around, and they made it work. And yeah, so they went exactly. With that until something else came around, and they went with that. It's right. Like the grass is always greener with uh, guitar pedals, it seems to be yeah, yeah, yeah. the case. Like, oh, no. no, I got this new distortion pedal. It sounds way different. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I was the same way. I was a big John Schofield fan like throughout the uh, 2000s. So I, my semi-hollow body, Ibanez, like, mm-hmm. that's what he played. So I found that and eventually had almost every pedal that he had on his uh, board for a oh, while. Nice. Yeah, everything from uh, the rat distortion to... Uh, I had that at one point, too. Yeah. It's floating around here somewhere in a box. It was kind of a staple of a certain time period of rock guitar. Like, Jeff Beck would play a rat pedal. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Got all those. Like, those. Uh, there, this whole slew of uh, early 1980s Ibanez pedals as well. Right. The, the 9 series, which is where the tube screamer comes from but there's a whole there's a chorus pedal that you know flanger uh, analog delays there's all i had like three or four of those pedals from that line i uh-huh. just found on ebay back in the day right 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 uh none of them outside of the tube screamer which you still have i, I still think. yeah so i don't think the other one since cv ray vaughn yeah others don't even work anymore my friend has my uh my ts808 so maybe maybe i'll get that back I'm seeing him tonight, actually. So maybe I'll get that back. We'll do like a little uh, tube screamer shootout. There you go. Hey, I'd be interested because I never really messed around much with. I the, feel like uh, that exists online, though, for sure, right? Yeah, oh, there's because there's like a hundred YouTube videos, of billion them. tube screamer type pedals. Yeah. So, yep. but it might be fun to do like a little, a little, a little test. Definitely. Those, I think those pedals were just made to be lent to your friends. <laughs> you think? Yeah. I lent mine. You lent yours. I think anyone who has one is like, oh yeah, I have one, but like you know. Brian has it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they don't really way. use it anymore. But, right. You know, just keep it around. <laughs> it's like the community tube screamer pedal. Like only they only sold one pedal in, in the entire company, but everyone gets to use it. You know, we just keep passing it around and around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like that idea. I have, some, have mixed some notes. I, I, yeah. I see you have a little pad of paper there. Yeah. Some notes. So with this mix, it's kind of like, it's kind of, how do I put this without sounding negative? It it's not as good as I would assume. Like a mix from '79 would be. Mm-hmm. It's it's really muted, is how I would describe it. Like okay. the frequency spectrum, you don't get a lot of low lows, and you don't get a lot of high highs. And I suspect that's probably one of the reasons they wanted to remaster it, other than it just not being that loud. From you know, because the needle Which would kind jump of, out of the yeah, vinyl. Yeah, that's kind of. It was a the case for most stuff back yeah, then. Yeah, that's know. that's just a technical uh, issue from uh, vinyl. If you have it too loud, the needle will literally jump out of the groove, and you, you can't play the record. And the same oh. with the bass. The bass is too loud. It's too much amplitude, and the needle will jump. So you have to be really careful back in the day. Obviously not a problem on CD, so they redid it. Mm-hmm. But even still with the remaster, I, I caught myself thinking like, like obviously the drums are close mic'd because you get those toms rolls in the in the intro and throughout the song and yeah. you know they're really like you, you hear can every hear them tom. clearly yeah <laughs> oh yeah but like it's still like this it's almost like if you're listening to a drum set and you throw a blanket over yourself not necessarily the drum set 
and you you know you still hear everything but it's like definitely has like a like a shelf high shelf in which you know that's probably from the tape and who knows how many times they ran that tape every time you run a tape to record or play back or do anything you're you're losing just a little bit of high end mm-hmm. so that's something to keep in mind when you're recording on a tape but yeah so i wrote that it was it was very warm and and the drums were kind of a a muted uh muted 70s sound is what i what i wrote down but like yeah because it's before the whole what we kind of classically think of like a like the 80s, 80s drum sound the big gated reverbs yeah this is before that yeah has caught hold of everyone <laughs> and i wonder and i kind of like I, I assume that's what they were going for because they were at an A-class studio. Let's talk about the studio since we're here. Yeah, yeah, because you were mentioning it earlier, so too. So they were at the Liszt studio, or <laughs> I assume the studio. It's probably <laughs> <laughs> French for. <laughs> French for. It. It's like there's a restaurant studio. here called El Stuff Pepper. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I may have mentioned that before on the podcast. Anyway, so... Some notable bands, uh, like we were speaking of earlier, were the Bee Gees, the Chicago, the Police, Chicago, Bowie. Yeah. All they all recorded at this Canadian studio. They had a Trident A range console, which we've never talked about Trident Trident yet. No, yeah. We so haven't. a Trident console is one of the if you don't have a Neve or an API or back in the day MCL or MCL. No, I'm right. I'm getting, I'm yeah. confusing my uh, my laptops and my consoles, M- MSI and oh yeah, yeah, MCO. So if you don't have one of those, you probably had a Trident, and they're really cool consoles. They're known for being really fast. Well, I was explaining to John before the show about slew rate. So and what slew rate is? Yeah, I hadn't heard of this before. Yeah, well, slew it's rate. it's an electrical uh, like amp concept so like quite frankly i'm kind of speaking above my my pay grade here don't we always yeah <laughs> but, but but what slew rate is is it's the rate of change in the output voltage caused by a step change on the input so what that means yes <laughs> is it's how quick when the console gets in sound like john hitting a snare drum Mm-hmm. How quick that sound becomes voltage, and then can be go through the recording process of moving the electrons and stuff on the magnetic tape. So, why do we care? Why, well, a console like a Neve console is a very slow slew rate. So the difference is, and this was described to me by an old engineer named Ed C. Love Ed C. Shout out to Ed. Yeah. <laughs> he he said when you're sitting in the control room and let's say you're just talking to the producer, but you have all the sounds and the drummer hits the snare drum. If it has a quick slew rate, it'll make you blink. It'll make you jump because those transients are getting through the system and, and getting recorded because it's, it's changing so quick. You can capture that transient. Whereas on a Neve console, you don't get as much as the transient, but you get more of the body. So it's more of a warm rounder sound, but it's, it doesn't mean it doesn't have punch. Or, yeah. or any transient. It just means that, like, it's just going to be a lot more snappy. It was how I would describe it. I'm picturing, like, so you trip and you hit your head on the countertop. Okay. It's going to hurt. But if it's a right angle countertop with a sharp edge, it's going to hurt more. And cut. But if it's a rounded countertop, at least you have a little, like, 
there's not that. I guess that's a, I guess I can, can get down with that a description of it. Thinking yeah. of like when you hear a snare drum, it's like hitting your head on a countertop. Yeah, it's like <laughs> um, another example. I suppose you could say is if you've ever driven a car with a delayed accelerator. Oh yeah, but I mean, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's Less not necessarily pickup. a good thing. Yeah, but like it's just it just it is what it is. But you know, you, you definitely kind of you, you get up to the same speed eventually. But there's like that half second of delay. It's supposed to save gas, so mm-hmm. they tell me. And and so yeah, it, you know, you, it's it has a fast slew rate. It has yeah. you know, it's real snappy. It's really really quick on the jump, and you know, everything has a lot of punch. So that's the console that they recorded through. According to Trident's website, I don't know if this is actually true, but according to them, it is the first split design console. So what's that mean? So you have what's called inline consoles and split consoles. The SSL consoles, which we explored, we did deep dive in the Jeff Buckley episode. Mm -hmm. I think, what, episode four, maybe? Yeah, I think so. Three or four. Three or four. Go back and refer to it. (laughs) It's it's towards the end. Uh, So that is a inline console and what that means is you essentially have your input section and your output section stacked on top of each other so mm-hmm. you'll see if you look looking down at the channel strip you'll see two sets of faders and what that is is one fader controls the input of the tape machine feed and one channel controls the output of the tape or what you're actually hearing from the speakers so you can change the volume without affecting the input and all that on a split design console you're just taking that second set of faders that control the output and you're putting it on like the right side of the console instead of on top of instead each of other. Stacked yeah. And, yeah. and it kind of makes it, it's a little bit easier to get you wrap your head around when you're, when you're learning consoles, because when you're on the monitor side, as it's called, everything you do doesn't affect the tape send. Mm-hmm. So it's really clear, oh, I'll, I'll over on this side, I'm only affecting what we're hearing, but not what's going to tape. If I start messing around with EQ on this side, I'm affecting what's going to tape. Yeah. Whereas on a split line, you actually have buttons that tell the console, you know, because you only have one set of EQs. I, yeah, I want the EQ in, to yeah. affect either the monitor side or the tape side. Mm-hmm. And you have, to, you have to tell it. So it's a little bit more difficult to kind of conceptualize where the signal is going and how it's flowing. Yeah. So this was the first split console, allegedly. I don't know. <laughs> Again, I don't know if that's true. But yeah. And like f- for a physical console, that sounds kind of useful, but it's kind of funny. And I think perhaps it maybe it's just due to like screen space. Like most, uh, you know, digital audio workstations these days, like looking at your screen, a pro tools, like everything's, like uh well uh, kind of but it kind of has the more natural like inline yeah but but i would argue um because it's you're essentially only looking at one half of the console when you use pro tools because there is no input essentially that's yeah that's kind of true um like your input fader would kind of be your gain knob Mm -hmm. it's it's a little it's a little confusing i know but you'll never guess what console they switch to after they do they switch to a Neve? They switch to an SSL 4000. Oh, an SSL. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I really like split consoles. Funny enough, I've done several sessions where we have a split console, but we have, you know, just an ungodly amount of channels, like over 100 channels. So what we'll actually do is we'll just run the console as if it were a split console, and we'll just send set the other channels to 
receive the uh, the output. So you were only dealing with one set of faders, and you have like a monitor side and a, yeah, a tape yeah, side. Yeah. <laughs> but it was cool. You know, now you don't always have a hundred channels to just duplicate. You know, forty-eight channels or whatever you're using. <laughs> oh yeah, nothing like having a hundred channels. Nothing <laughs> like having a hundred channels. <laughs> that snare drum needs three mics. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's that's what I wanted to to hit on about yeah. the studio and the. I just thought there's I don't I don't really know the specifics of what mics they used or. Or anything like that, but I assume it's kind of your normal 1970s, lot of 67s for the mm-hmm. for the mics. I know I, when we we're getting this guitar tone, I had our amp model set to a 57 and a 414, and we were kind of monkeying around with the sound, like oh, we're yeah. kind of close, not really that close. Well, I don't know. Let's try moving this and that. And the second I switched it to two condensers, yeah, model on that- the cab, it was like oh that that sounds a lot more like it. So they probably use yeah. the condenser on the cab. Yeah. Not to toot our own horn, but I think we got a pretty close, We're pretty uh, close. emulation of Not that opening riff. Not bad for about yeah. seven minutes of monkeying around. It helps that you can play it pretty well. <laughs> well, I try. Another reason I picked this song is because, relatively speaking, this is a more approachable r- Rush song. Like, a little easier to play. You don't want to go through YYZ. <sighs> yeah, no. <laughs> it's like make two notes very complicated. <laughs> yeah, dude. But yeah, I was going to ask you, what a uh, amp modeler do you have me going through? Ah, it, it is uh, a Marshall, Marshall? JMP twenty two oh three. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, so I think probably life's... wouldn't have been around. No, it should have been like late seventies. I think is model's mm-hmm. energy. Yeah. Well, uh, Lifeson is. Recording through a lot of, uh, he had a high watt. Which is basically a Marshall copy. Yeah, yeah. Marshall. And a basement as well. Which and, is, oh, <laughs> Marshall is a copy of a basement. Basement, yeah. <laughs> copy of a copy of a copy, yeah. <laughs> and we think, you know, some of what he did on this song itself might have been with his 335, his Gibson ES335. Uh, he used a lot of different guitars on the whole album. One type of guitar I hadn't heard of before uh, Gibson Howard Roberts, which is kind of like a, a semi-hollow body, which is cool. I hadn't heard of that design before. But yeah, so this song, on the musical side, it's pretty much in the key of E major. And you have that opening kind of pull-off riff that we talked about a little earlier with the flange effect. And then they get into the second riff, which is almost a um, almost like a bluesy riff. Like... Very, uh, it's kind of easy to play on the guitar. Is there's like a fingering pattern to it as well, right? You have open string, second fret, third fret, fourth fret. That would be that blue note, right? Is is in yeah. that? In the, yeah. yeah, some may call it the blue note, yes. <laughs> and then you Maybe go to it's the, the brown note. No, bah, that, bah, bah. that'd be uh, well, I don't want to detune my string, and then you just go to the next string, do the exact same fingering pattern. And then he, he riff. Um, funny enough, that it reminds me of uh, if listeners are familiar with the song um, "Lady Madonna" by the Beatles. 
there's a very similar sort of like a bass uh, walk. Yeah, yeah, But yeah, so so that's a cool riff. But we're still not even to the beginning of the verse. So then they go into the main, I would call it the main section for like the verse and the chorus. Which is a great use of like playing some, I just knocked down my guitar stand. Uh (laughs) A great use of like playing some open, your open E chord, using those open first and second strings, your E and B, and then moving a power chord, keeping those top two strings, your E and B is like ringing over. And I was using this song up earlier this week with some of my students. We're getting into like learning triads and, you know, different inversions of triads on the guitar and kind of use this uh, chord progression as an example of that. You have E, which if we're in the key of E, that's our one chord. We go to our five, which is a B, to the three. Technically B like a three minor. And then to the four. So that's those are the four main chords going on through that section of the song. And um, that carries over a lot of the tune. And you'll have some overdubs, like he starts to get into like higher inversions of those same chords. Kind of a, using this song as a great way to kind of learn some of those moving uh, triad shapes on the guitar. Very useful to be able to see on the spot. But this song, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's their first song that they uh, do a little reggae action. Yeah, like, and the towards, bridge. Yeah, it's like kind of towards the end of the, you know, it's about five minutes total in length, and they go into some reggae, and there's actually a guest musician... Erwig, and I would not be able to pronounce his last name. Uh, he, he was playing some steel drums as well. <laughs> and, you know, some of their other songs, they would have some reggae sections as well. And uh, Lifeson said, like, it just kind of made us smile and, you know, have a little fun. You know, like, they do this, like, short little, it's like three measures long of reggae, and then they get back into the... <laughs> Just like a little tease almost. Yeah, so it's kind of fun. But in some ways, should it be surprising because the turn of this decade from the late 70s into the 80s, Bob Marley was a big influence, especially during the 70s. And you started to have bands start to incorporate the reggae styles that feel like police would be a very good example. Like they started to use a lot of reggae into their songs. Um, even Eric Clapton, you know, I shot the sheriff, you know, doing that Bob Marley cover. So that was kind of like in the zeitgeist of the time uh-huh. word of the day zeitgeist. And so, uh, yeah. And they would later on, you know, throw some more reggae into their tunes, but that's kind of a fun section. But let's talk about like Neil Peart's, Lyrical contribution. I think my favorite part of this tune lyrically is when it gets to the uh, the section, one likes to believe in the freedom of music, 
but glittering prizes and endless compromises shatter the illusion of integrity. That's kind of cool. Cool. You, I talked about the whole, like, what we thought was all about the music, you know, that whole kind of right. romantic notion of, you know, we had the freedom to play what we want to and, you know, like, let the people decide if they like it or not. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of shattered by the, well, if you want to, you know, want to make this album, we got to have like a three minute and a half song. We need to have something radio friendly. We need to, you know, right. those compromises. You start Kinda to... The A&R person giving you suggestions. Yeah, yeah. You have, you know... You know, the guys in suit and ties talking about like, could this song be more happy somehow? Or, you know, could we, right. we need a bower, you know, a ballad for you, you know. That's a- <laughs> People who have never played an instrument in their life or sang before talking about like, I need something like, you know, like, you know, something that would make me, uh, you know, grab more of the teenage audience. You know, like, you know, power ballads are big right now. Could we do one of those? Or, you know, what are you talking about? Yeah. Can you just write it, make it happen? You know? By the way, which one's Rush? Which one of you is Rush? Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> That's a line from another Pink Floyd song. Yes. Have a yeah. cigar. <laughs> By the way, which one's pink? I love that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's another, it's another one that has the same kind of uh, message, same kind of message. Yeah. Some other good lines from this song. For the words of the prophets were written on the studio wall. Concert hall and the echoes with the sounds of salesmen, salesmen of salesmen. You know. Wasn't I don't know if it's in that copy of the lyrics, but I think originally Neil Peart had wrote profits as in monetary gain. Monetary profits, not and, as and in... Not profits as in... Yeah, like spiritual profits. 20, or, 20 years, there shall be a great evil. Yeah, exactly. But so that f- fun use of the, you know, play on of that word that, right. you know... Pretty good for one of the worst, top three worst lyricists yeah, right? in <laughs> rock and roll history. Oh, God. But yeah, this is like a, a good example of Back in the day, like you could still have radio hits, and what I mean, the lyrics don't come in until about a close to a minute in. I think you have that opening riff with the flange, and then it goes to that kind of bluesy riff, and then you get to the chord section, and then he starts singing. You know, these days, you know, talking about over by then. Yeah, talking about like compromises, you know, and the lack of freedom in music. You know, the whole saying these days is like hit the chorus before the one minute mark in fact try to hit around like 45 to 50 seconds you know you want to get that main hook of the song in before you don't bore us get to the chorus exactly yeah all those sayings like that rush wasn't really concerned with any of that no (laughs) right I, i will say for today just not to be so doom and gloom about it with the advent of like SoundCloud and, you know, people releasing their own music. Anyone can release music onto Spotify. People are free to do what they want these days. Like if you want to do a 20 minute long song and the next part two is, you know, that's the whole album, just, you know, the two songs, you can do it. Mm -hmm. It's just the, when you get into like getting a record deal and then you're not paying for the album to be produced and all that stuff, then you know, people start having some pull over you, which was the norm in 1979 yeah. when albums cost $100,000 to record. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the, in some ways, like, while things are tighter within the industry, there's that whole Wild West of you can release anything you want Yeah, the, the, pro- the, the problem now is just being heard above the noise. Yeah, the, we'll that's it. the thing. With the, uh, the freedom the internet has provided with us, you know, distributing our own material 
our own music. It's like this very this podcast. Own, yeah. This own podcast. We yeah. just decided to talk about music and stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's just that, well, since everyone can do it, almost everyone Does will it. do it yeah. to an extent. And so you just have so many more voices, you know, like crowding the space now. A fun little tidbit about not necessarily the song, but the album it was on, Permanent Waves. It had some controversy with the cover. Oh. For those who may not know the cover, it kind of shows like a kind of like a 1950s s looking like attractive woman, almost like a, you know a housewife like, but she's a little dressed up, probably with like the 50s quaaludes. hair. And they're you know like kind of in a neighborhood, but it looks demolished and ah. looks to be like a a bomb going off in the background with a newspaper overhead or a newspaper kind of on the ground. Yeah, you kind of see that. Kind of um a pop sound looking you know kind of a dystopian looking and on that newspaper it says dewey defeats truman on the newspaper but apparently they got a complaint from the chicago tribune of all people really uh, and so the artist uh changed it to saying dewey but spelled d-e-w-e-i instead of dewey with a y i don't know how that really changes much, that's it. much yeah. better it's kind of like a funny little like conspiracy within it and I guess there's like a billboard in the distance that had Coca-Cola on it. And so they had to change that. And, you know, just like funny little thing. Back when like cover art could be a big deal that would cause controversy. You know, like. Right. <laughs> so I'm thinking that might be all I have on this song. Yeah. Anything else comes to mind? No. I mean, Rush, we'll, we'll probably, I, I assume eventually we'll probably get into the, some of their more proggy yeah, maybe stuff. Maybe we'll do later Tom on. Sawyer because they they really changed from like a guitar focused band into a more atmospheric keyboard driven sound. Yeah, which it, I, is kind of interesting. And there's some of some hints to that on this record. Yeah, on you can you can track. see them kind starting to shift. There's some of that uh, synth stuff already going on, like in some of that done by uh, Getty Lee mm-hmm. mostly. Like he was kind of messing around with. Uh, I just saw a list like. Yeah, like a mini Moog, um, synthesizers, and Oberheim polyphonic OB1. <laughs> oh, yeah, one of my yes. favorites. <laughs> While as, uh, you know, life's in, like, you know, he mainly was just guitars, like 12 string guitars. Um, on this record, he even used like a guitar in Nashville tuning, which is usually thought of as when you take the two middle strings so your fourth and third strings your d and g you mean your third and fourth strings <laughs> and you just replace them with thinner strings you still tune them to those pitches but they're an octave higher oh so that's uh, considered a uh, nashville tuning and so you'd strum a chord and instead of like that your high e string being the highest pitched one you actually have pitches above that so it, it kind of creates a cool texture especially for finger style that sort of thing because like the almost like a banjo how the, on a banjo the strings aren't tuned lowest to highest there's that the fifth string is higher than what would have been your highest string mm-hmm. and that you know gets plucked with the the thumb pick a lot so it just kind of creates you know this interesting uh melodic movement within you know chords if you're arpeggiating them how did that how did that become known as nashville tuning that's interesting literally just how guitars would start to use it on a lot of country records so it's just an octave up on your d and g strings yep yeah it's so it's pretty cool you you picture any sort of like chord you might make 
when you're pressing down on those two strings, usually those strings are kind of hidden within the middle part of that chord. They're kind of yeah, like, yeah. almost like, you know, hard to really pinpoint those pitches. But octave higher, they stick out more, like sure, they're kind of yeah. being on top of the chord. And so things you might do, you know, say like a, yeah, like a, a D chord. On a Nashville tune guitar, it sounds like, which right. is kind of hard to do fingering wise. Right, right. If you you know had changed that string, tuning up an octave higher, huh. uh, you get those cool little things that you can't naturally or quite as easily get. Right, it might be it might be a really fun thing to kind of layer when you when you layer diamonds on songs. That exactly, might be a fun, yeah, fun little thing to Especially, do. Especially yeah, overdubbing multiple guitar especially on acoustic it sounds really cool oh you yeah know, you, you can create that 12 string sound without having a 12 string guitar around <laughs> if you don't have one around you can it, and essentially that's probably where it came from is like we didn't have a 12 string acoustic so we you know adjusted a normal acoustic to kind of create that sound right yeah so yeah so that's spirit of the radio and wait kevin do you hear that? What is that? Oh, that sounds like some feedback, my friend. I think we're having some feedback issues. Uh-oh. Let's hear what people are saying. Blame the sound guy. So if you can, if you're listening to this, if you haven't done so already, we really appreciate five-star re- reviews on the uh, Apple iTunes. Well, we appreciate all reviews, but mostly just the five-star ones. Mostly just the five-star. You can take your four-star and shove it. Shove it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we got some kind reviews from some listeners, most of whom I think are just friends of ours who uh, were nice enough to do to do this. So um, ASAP four three seven, A S A P H four three seven. I'm not familiar with that one. I don't know. He says insightful. Ooh. I really enjoy how John and Kevin take such a deep look at classic songs. Each episode, I learn something new about a song I love. I'm also impressed that the <laughs> guitar tone sounds so good over a podcast. Hey, thank you. Uh, let's hear another one. Another one. That's How the magic about, uh, of modeling, my friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone call the Clavinator. I Ooh, wonder who Clavinator. that could be. Yeah. Someone who calls himself the Clavinator says, these guys dive in deep on tunes, explaining backgrounds on songs, all the way down to the type of equipment used to record different sounds. Love it. Great for music nerds, but also great for regular folks. Just wanting to know more about some of the classic songs they review. Keep it up, guys. Thank you, Clavinator. Clavinator, whoever you may be. We appreciate that. And if you uh, wish to have your feedback read live here on the podcast, please give us that nice review and some feedback, and we'll review some more of those as we hear some more feedback. Yeah, and again... Uh, anything you might, any questions you may have or, or suggestions for the show, John, how can they get in contact with us? You can either reach us on Instagram. We Instagram. have an Instagram account now, Coffee and Consoles, or you can email at us. Email at us? <laughs> you, can, you can at email us. At email us. <laughs> Coffee and Consoles at gmail.com. We'd appreciate to hear from anyone. That's right. Even if you have a suggestion in, in how we can improve, you know, we're... We're still a new podcast. Yeah. We're we're going to be changing things and tweaking things as we go. I don't I don't think that's any, any surprise to anyone. 
So if you have any suggestions, please let us know. You yeah. love us, hate us. You know, we don't we don't really care if, if uh In fact you if have, you hate us, definitely let us know. Definitely let maybe us know. Maybe we can do some like hate mail. Maybe later we can on. sway you. <laughs> maybe maybe we can sway you to the to the love category. Yeah, we'll take you out for a drink, try to woo woo you over. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this has been Coffee and Consoles. My name is John. And I'm Kevin. Till next time, friends. Long days and pleasant nights. <laughs> Dirt, <laughs>